What a blessing it is to stand in that deliverance, that redemption, that He did conquer the grave. And we come forth boldly today proclaiming His praises, sharing in communion to remember the good news of Jesus Christ. And today we want to celebrate that. And I know we've been doing that for the past few weeks. We've been in a series talking about parties and celebrations and festivals in Scripture. And today I want to move past just the idea that, yeah, we need to be people of celebration. I think we've got that. The question is, what does that look like? What does it look like to throw kingdom parties? And today I want to talk about our guest lists to those parties, because every good party has a guest list, people that we invite to the party. And, and, and God has some specific commands in Scripture uh, to point us in the right direction so that we include the right people at the party. Jose was exactly right. We want more people to come to know Jesus. And that's going to look different sometimes, the people that come that as we begin to reflect our community more than we do even today, that we're going to get to know people we don't currently know and get to share good news with them. And so today we want to talk about the guest list. And and to start that, let's begin with a prayer this morning and then we'll open to Scripture together. God, for your people spread out across this city, people who have committed their lives to you and those who may not know your story yet, we're all your children. And so God, today I pray that we can be the kind of people that live lives that fascinate the people around us. Not lives that argue people into the kingdom, that's not our job. But lives that, that, that sprinkle seed, God, and, and allow you in your good time and in your good season to bring the growth. So God, today we, we ask that you would open our minds, you would open our eyes to see the people who need an invite. People who need to be included in the party. This morning, God, I pray you pour through me the gift of preaching. So that Christ would be formed in our hearts. It's the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Well, today I'd like to ask you to have your Bible uh, with you. If you've got it there, get get your phone out. Be ready to be kind of moving from Scripture to Scripture, because I want to go throughout Scripture today talking about parties and the people and participants who are invited to those parties. But to begin today, I want to go to uh, the book of Acts. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up, up to Acts, past the Gospels of the New Testament to the book that comes after. It's the story of the early church. And I want to take a look at the first question that's asked in the book of Acts. I think it's very instructive to us to help us understand the the mindset of the early church and sometimes uh, what our mindset has been like that God wants to shift us from. And so the first question that's asked comes again on the heels of Jesus dying and being resurrected. And he's come back and he's appeared to the disciples and at least 500 others, Scripture tells us. And as he's about to ascend back to heaven, he's going to leave God's people to start this movement that's going to go all throughout the Roman Empire and then throughout the world. He's with his disciples, he's about to ascend, and there's this conversation that happens. And if you didn't believe there was a stupid question, I'll tell you there's stupid questions. And this question in Acts chapter 1 is one of those questions. And it comes from the mouth of the disciples. And just think about this for a moment before I read this. Jesus has spent three years of his life with these guys. And if you were going to start a movement to go throughout the world, I don't know how you would start the movement, but part of me would want to spend all my time with the crowds, right? To just continue to grow that crowd. But Jesus makes a particular decision to live with 12 men and some others that are around that circle in specific ways because he knows that these are going to be the, the, the ones who start and take this movement all throughout the world. So he makes this decision, and this is what comes of it at the end of those three years. Acts 1 verse 6. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? 
Now, that might not sound like a stupid question at first, but I assure you it is. I want to talk about that today. Because what the question assumes is that Jesus had come to earth in order to restore the kingdom to Israel. That his, his job on earth was to take the Roman Empire and all those on the throne and to cast them out and then to start a whole new empire that was going to be a Jesus empire. And so finally Jesus has been resurrected. The guy can you know, feed 5,000, he can raise people from the dead. That's a pretty good leader for your country, right? So the idea is, okay, the Messiah's come. Now it's going to start, right, Jesus? And Jesus is like, I can just see him, right? You know, palm to head. Are you kidding me? This is what you've gotten over these three years? So my question I want to ask as we start this morning is, where did the disciples, where did they get this idea about a tribal God? I want to talk about that tribal God that's really found all throughout Scripture, how that works out. In, in the ancient Near East, during the time of Jesus and before, it was common that any tribe or nation would have gods that they would worship. The idea was that, well, okay, if we can get the gods on our side and our God is powerful, then what happens when you go into battle? Your side's going to win because you've got the more powerful God. And it was clear whose God was most powerful every time there was a battle or a war because anyone who won obviously had the gods on their side, the more powerful God on their side. So your hope was, as a country, as a tribe, as a nation, that you would have the most powerful God. And we see this idea happen uh, and creep up in Scripture several times in the Old Testament. The first happens in the book of, uh, let's get this right, Joshua. Joshua, this is the story of Rahab and the spies. And Rahab has been hearing, along with Jericho, about the activity of what God's been doing for God's tribe, right? That's the thought. And this is what Rahab says. This is Joshua chapter 2. We'll start reading uh, in verse 8. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof, Rahab, and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land, and what a great fear of you has fallen on us, so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear, and everyone's courage failed because of you, for the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. What is Rahab saying? Rahab's saying, we've heard about what's happened. We heard about the ten plagues. And of all things, you took on Egypt and your God beat Egypt's God. We heard about that. We also heard about Sihon and Og. You defeated those uh, who were part of the Amorites. And our fear is now you're marching toward Jericho and it's pretty clear that we're not sure our gods are going to stand up. So Rahab sees this as an opportunity to help her family in the midst of this. But I want you to see the context of this. That in the ancient Near East, when Israel's beginning their journey as a people, The assumption is that there are some gods that are more powerful than others. And right now in the story, it looks like Yahweh, Israel's God, is doing pretty well. Well, another place I want to take us to is in 1 Kings. So flip forward a few books, if you you will, with me to 1 Kings. I want to read in in chapter 18. This is a story that many of you may have heard in BBS or uh, may have heard or, or read recently. But 1 Kings 18, beginning in verse 22, I want to start reading. This is a story about Elijah and the prophet's of Baal. Listen to this tribal God idea that, that it's all throughout uh, this era in these verses. Then Elijah said to them, I'm uh, the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces, put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. 
I'll prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I'll call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. And then all the people said, what you say is good. So this is how it worked in this era. Every nation, every tribe, they had their God to call upon. And every time there was a war or a battle, it became clear whose God was more powerful. Now, most of us think that we've probably evolved in our understanding about the gods a little bit past that, right? It's not that, you know, our side wins and all of a sudden we know and invoke the praise of our God in that sense when it comes to tribes and nations and that sort of thing. But there's a part of us that hasn't evolved all that much, if we're honest, because tribes still exist, don't they? And I would submit that perhaps there are still gods that we pretend maybe look a little different, but they're still lying behind the tribes that we live in. How do I know this? Well, just watch the commercials we watch, right? Pepsi versus Coke, right? I mean, you could tell me today which tribe you're a part of. Mac versus PC, anyone? Rangers versus Blue Jays? I hope there's not any Blue Jay fans out here today. Like We have tribes, don't we? Texas OU? There's new tribes that come up, right? Baylor and TCU, like tribes out of the you know, other parts. And then there's, of course, the A&M tribe that's been there and is doing well in another uh, c- country far off land now in the SEC. But see, perhaps we haven't progressed as much as we thought we have because these tribes exist. And sometimes it looks something like this, right? Split right down the middle. In fact, we went as a family to the game yesterday. It was Texas and OU. And when you walk in the stadium, you can see the elements of tribalism that are there, right? But everyone walks in with their shirt, with their color. You see body paint and war paint. Everyone knows the battle cries and are ready to scream them. For the, that's part of the reason I can't preach today very well. My, my voice is worn out, right? We have, we have this sense when we, we know the songs. In fact, I heard prayers almost offered to the gods, I think, at, at certain times yesterday. So it's interesting how we've evolved past these understandings. But aren't there still these loyalties, these tribes that we walk in beside, and it's amazing what we sometimes do in the midst of these battles, these wars on the gridiron. See, the world naturally breaks itself up into tribes. Because with a tribe comes an identity, and with an identity comes security. And the tribe exists for the sake of its members, right? I mean, we know who's in, we know who's out by the color you wear, by the song you sing, by whatever it might be. But several thousand years ago, in a book called The Bible... There was this revolutionary leap forward from this whole tribal way of thinking. And it's recorded in the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 12. In this amazing call that God gives to a guy named Abram. Genesis 12, I want to start reading in verse 1. And pay close attention to this whole tribal idea in this passage. So Abram's come from this land of Ur, which is its own tribe. Listen to these words that God speaks to Abram. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country your people, and your father's household, to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. Now stop right there. There's nothing different about those words that Yahweh says to Abram from any of the other tribal beliefs before. Right, I'm going to be your God. I'm calling you out of a tribe where your father was to a new tribe. And I'm a better God than them. I'm going to bless your name. I'm going to make it great. I'll bless those who bless you. I'll curse those who curse you. That's normal tribal thinking, right? But here's where the revolutionary change happens at the end of verse 3. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now, This is the first time in recorded history that there was ever an idea at this time. That there might be a tribe that doesn't just exist for the sake of the tribe, 
calling on the gods to protect themselves. This is a tribe that's actually going to bless the rest of the world. This is a revolutionary thought in human history. And it's Yahweh, the God of Israel, who actually gives this calling to the people of God, to the people of Israel. Do you see how revolutionary this is? Because this would be hard to get outside of the consciousness, to get outside of the idea that we fight for ourselves, we protect ourselves, we know our war chants, and we know when we go to battle, we've got the stronger God on our side. But this is why Israel exists. It doesn't exist for itself. It exists to be a blessing to all the other nations. But like any other tribe, Israel tends to forget its calling. And they fall into tribalism. And you can imagine how this would work. I mean, they end up in Egypt and they see this God that seems to be more powerful than Yahweh. They're in slavery. Yeah, is this God what you meant by blessing all the other nations? We're going to work hard and build bricks for their empires? Well, finally, they get freed and they end up going through the wilderness. They go to the promised land and they start acting like all the other nations. Have you noticed this? It's like this tribalism takes over again. First Samuel 8, there's this story where they want a king to lead them. And God says, you know, you don't want a king. I'm your king. It's not going to turn out well. But they're like, no, all the other nations have kings. If we're going to be a tribe, then we need to have a king. And this is our tendency as humans is to fall back into that tribalistic idea where we work for ours and we, we, we do all this for ourselves. So God has to call through the prophets a reminder to this passage in Genesis 12 to a whole new reminder about what the, the reason is for the existence of Israel. This is in Isaiah chapter 2. I want to read a couple of verses here. This is the prophets, again, calling Israel back to its original calling and telling them about a future that's brighter. Isaiah 2, verse 1. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations, let me read that again, and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. You see, Isaiah sees a bigger picture. He sees a picture reminding them again that you don't exist for yourself, that in the long run, God is going to call people to the temple. It's not just going to be the people of Israel. It's going to be the people of every nation on earth. It's a more expansive vision because a vision of tribalism is a vision like this that sees us only. But this vision is so much bigger than that. And for three years, Jesus has been living with his disciples, walking hand in hand with them, walking step by step with them, trying to proclaim this vision again to them over and over again. This is not just about you. This has a goal beyond it. So I want to return back to that question, the first question in the book of Acts, and read this again. With all this context, all this background, you understand now, I think, what this question is getting at. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And if I had spent three years with these guys trying to instill the vision of God inside of them, I can't imagine the response I would have at this moment. I've given my life for these 12 guys to get it. And here we are, the last question they asked Jesus, it's clear they don't get it. They're still in this tribal mode. They still think this is about trying to establish a throne for Israel alone. And yet there's more to the story, isn't it? If I were Jesus, I'm trying to think what I would do. I'd probably remind them about a a parable that, well, Jose mentioned earlier. Parable of a banquet. 
about those who got invited into the story. He told his disciples that story about all these people that would be invited in. But before that, maybe he would take them back to all the stories they knew from the Hebrew Scriptures. In fact, let's go through a couple of these again, reminding us of our story and who's a part of this guest list from the very beginning. And Leviticus 23 is a passage that I mentioned a couple of weeks ago. And I said I was going to come back to it, and now I want to do that. Because this, this passage, Leviticus 23, God's commanding Israel, I want you to throw celebrations, I want you to throw parties, so that you'll remember the story of God. He tells them how they're to celebrate the Sabbath. He tells them how they're to celebrate the Passover, the Feast of Weeks. Remember that feast, we're going to come back to that in a little bit. And then the Feast of Tabernacles. And there's this verse in there I found a couple of weeks ago, I just thought, what is this doing here? It doesn't seem to fit in this festival idea, but this is what it says. Uh, This is Leviticus 23, verse 22, in the section about the Feast of Weeks. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leave them for the poor and for the the foreigner residing among you. I am the Lord your God. Now, why is that there? This is a passage about parties, about festivals. Why in the midst of that is there this passage about, hey, leave parts of your field open to those who are outside of your group. Well, then I turned over to Deuteronomy 16, which I encourage you to do with me. Deuteronomy 16 is a passage that's talking about the festivals as well. Very similar to Leviticus 23. In Deuteronomy 16, we read this in verse 10. Again, in the Feast of Weeks passage. Then celebrate the festival of weeks. To the Lord your God by giving a free will offering in proportion to the blessings the Lord your God has given you. And rejoice before the Lord your God at the place he will choose as a dwelling for his name. Now here's who's supposed to be a part of this festival of weeks. You, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, the Levites in your town. That's all normal, right? But then this list. And then the foreigners, the fatherless, and the widows living among you. Remember, we'll come back to that in a minute, what we remember. And there it is again, right? In the midst of this passage about festivals, a reminder. Hey, this isn't just about you. This isn't just about the tribe. If there are fatherless among you, invite them in. If there are people who don't know what their tribe is, or maybe they're widows, or, or maybe they're foreigners, include them in this festival. Because it's important for them to understand the story of God as well. But then I want to read verse 12 about the reason for this. Why do we invite these foreigners and the fatherless and the widows? This is what it says. Remember... That you were slaves in Egypt. And follow carefully these decrees. Again, I said a couple weeks ago, parties in the kingdom of God are about remembering, not forgetting. And why are they supposed to invite all these people to remind them? You were once slaves in Egypt. You used to be on the outside of the empire. You weren't taken care of. And now that you live as a nation, it's your job to remember what it was like back then and treat people the way you would want to be treated. Why? Because you were slaves in Egypt. We're people who are supposed to remember what the story is about. Remember Genesis 12. And as I'm thinking about Jesus and this question that comes up in Acts 1-6, it just bothers me, this question. Why do we seem to want to come back to this point where it's about us alone when Scripture all along has been prompting us forward? In Luke 14 and Luke 15, two chapters of Scripture, Jesus uh, tells stories or is involved in nine different parties in a two-chapter section. Which is a lot of partying, right? Parties about lost things being found and lost sons coming home. And he's at a couple of these parties. And in Luke chapter 14, which I'd encourage you to open to, Luke 14, there's a story that precedes the parable of the, of the banquet. 
In Luke 14, this is what we read as he's talking to the host of a party that he's attending. Luke 14, verse 12. Then Jesus said to his host, When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, so you'll be uh, repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. There it is again, isn't it? This reminder that's all throughout Scripture, that this is not about you alone. That when you throw parties, that when you throw festivals, don't just throw them for the people who look just like you or that can give you a leg up in society. Make sure you include all those at your party. And then there's the story that Jesus tells about the banquet. Jose told it from Matthew. This is a story that happens in Luke as well. And the master invites all these people, and they, they say they're going to come, but at the last minute, he calls for them to come to the party, and they have all these excuses why they can't show up. Well, I've got to take care, you know, I've got to buy some oxen. And I just t- lame excuses if you look specifically at them. Just trying to get out of this party. And, and the master's angry. That's the word that Jesus uses. He's angry. Now, if I'm a master who's angry, who's been throwing a party and everyone says no, what do I do? I take my party and I go home and I enjoy myself. I'm not going to extend that to anyone else. But what does the master do? In his anger, he extends the party. He says, servants, go out and find whoever you can. Bring them in. We're going to have a party. And I don't care who it is, good or bad, as Jose read earlier, they can show up to this party because we are going to party tonight. And they show up, the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Because if you want to throw kingdom parties... You'll pay close attention to the guest list. And every once in a while, these stories don't just emerge in the Scripture. They emerge in our newspapers. There's a story in the Boston Globe in 1990. It tells the story about a, an engaged couple who's uh, about, about to get married. And so they're doing all the preparations for the wedding and the reception that would follow. They go to the Hyatt Hotel in downtown Boston, trying to figure out if this is a place they can afford. And they have expensive tastes, and so after they do all of this at the reception, it's going to cost them $13,000, which is a lot today, but even more in 1990. And so they're, they're setting this up. They pay down half of it as a deposit, and they're going home to start figuring out who they're going to invite to the party. And the day the, reservation, or the, the invitations get in people's mailboxes, the groom gets cold feet. Backs out of the wedding, and now you've got an angry fiancé trying to figure out, how do we reclaim this money? So she goes up to the Hyatt place, and the guy who's the party planner said, well, I feel real bad about your situation, but there's just nothing we can do about the deposit because we saved that night, and we haven't been able to give this date out because of it, so you'll still have to pay down this deposit, and you can have the rest of your money. You don't have to pay to us. And So she went home, and in the midst of struggling over what to do, there were two choices she had, either throw the party, and it's not going to be a wedding party, it's going to look different, or you know, kind of give up half of the party cost. She remembers back on her pillow that night about a time a decade before in Boston that she'd been homeless. And she remembered sleeping on uh, the pavement, sleeping and knowing the people in the past that were part of the poor community. She kind of stepped her way out of that and found a new way, but she remembered back to that and realized this is an opportunity. And so in June of 1990, a party was thrown at the Hyatt Hotel in downtown Boston And all the homeless in Boston were invited to that party. She made contacts through all the contacts she had before, a decade before. And that night, instead of eating pizza out of used pizza boxes, they were eating chicken cordon bleu with waiters dressed in tuxedos, passing out hors d'oeuvres, dancing in late into the night to big band music. And if you wonder what that sound was, it was the kingdom of God. 
Not just a story in Scripture, a story that continues to happen today. Because if you want to know how to throw a kingdom party, you've got to pay attention to the guest list. Tony Campolo is a Christian author and writer. He tells the story in one of his books about going overseas to Hawaii, a great place to speak at a conference. And so he gets off the plane, and you know how it is when you're traveling sometimes, jet lag catches up with you. And so he had checked into the hotel, gotten a little bit of sleep. At 3 a.m., he's up, he's ready for breakfast like he would have been back in, in Philadelphia. And so he, he's on his way just trying to find a place, a diner, anywhere that he can get some eggs and some coffee, right, some bacon. And he finds this dingy little dive in a back alley, and he goes into this diner, and he sits at the counter. It's just him and the owner who's there cooking up breakfast for him. He got donut and coffee. That's really all they had going that morning. And all of a sudden, all these women start coming in about 3.30 that morning, and it was clear they'd been out for a night of work. They were some prostitutes from around Honolulu. Tony's kind of nervously trying to finish his donut and coffee before anything goes wrong or, you know, he gets picked out as a preacher in the scene. And so he's about to scurry off when all of a sudden one of the women says to one of her friends, you know, tomorrow's my 29th birthday. I'm looking forward to celebrating. And, I, and one of the other women who was there said, well, what do you want us to do? We don't have any money for a present. You want us to throw a party for you? She said, no, no, no. I know. I don't need a party. I've never had a birthday party in my life. And so Tony stuck around while the ladies left that morning and he pulled up a chair to the counter and asked the owner, do you know who that woman was whose birthday is tomorrow? And he said, yeah, that's Agnes. She's come in for years to this diner every night after work. And he said, well, what do you think about throwing a birthday party for Agnes? So the owner was thrilled. He told his wife. They baked up a birthday cake. They brought in decorations, had a sign across the front of the store that said, happy birthday, Agnes, waiting for the next morning. They show up at 2.30 a.m. awaiting all this and had gotten word around the community that this birthday party was going to be thrown for Agnes. At 3.15, the place is full. All the prostitutes in Honolulu are there. And Tony and the owner, they throw this birthday party. When she walks in at 3.30, she just falls to her knees in excitement, thinking, wow, they actually threw a party for me. Unbelievable. And as she took the cake in her hands, she fell to her knees and she said, would it be okay if I took this cake home to show my family? I've never even had a, a cake or a party thrown for me. So she leaves and, and all of a sudden Tony's here in the midst of this room that he never expected he'd be in when he agreed to speak at the concert. He stands up on a stool and he says, would it be okay if we prayed together? And he lifted up this prayer in the midst of the scene that he never anticipated he'd be in. Well, after that, the owner was kind of this gruff guy and he said, well, if I'd known you were a preacher, I wouldn't have even invited you in in the first place. What kind of church are you a part of anyway? And in his book, he writes this line that's one of the best lines in any book I've ever read. He says, I belong to a church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning. And the owner mockingly said, no, you don't. If there was a church like that, I'd go to it. Church, if you want to throw a kingdom party, you'll pay attention to the guest list. i got to say, when it comes to the question in Acts 1-6, I get the disciples' question. Because when religion kind of goes wrong, we get caught up this way, don't we? God, what are you doing for us? Why did this happen? Why are you not stepping up and being the God you should be? Why are you not the tribal God we expected? Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Are you going to restore the kingdom to America? Are you going to restore the kingdom at all? And it's easy to get caught up in tribal questions. It's easy to believe in a tribal God. But since the very beginning of time, God has been calling his people to be a part of a tribe that doesn't exist for itself. It exists for the sake of 
of the world. So I want you to pay close attention to Acts 1 and the response that Jesus gives. Because anytime we get caught up in tribalism, maybe this is the response we need to remember. He said to them, It's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by His own authority. But you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Because if you want to throw a kingdom party, you're going to pay attention to the guest list. Sure enough, in Acts chapter 2, they don't stay in Jerusalem long, do they? Acts 2 is in Jerusalem. They wait on the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit shows up clearly at a festival called Pentecost, which can also be known as the Feast of Weeks. I want you to pay close attention to what happens in Acts 2, verse 9. Listen to the guest list that we find. Parthians, Medes, and Elamites... Residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Because if you want to throw a kingdom party, you've got to pay attention to the guest list because the people of God do not exist for ourselves. We exist for the good of the world. And the rest of the story of the Acts is the story of the early church trying to figure out how do we walk away from the old mode of religion and tribalism to begin to accept a whole new group of people that the tribe was always supposed to exist for. And they struggle. Peter struggles in Acts chapter 10 with Cornelius, but it seems clear the Holy Spirit's doing something amongst this group of people that should have been on the outside. Acts chapter 15, they're trying to figure out what do we do? How do we invite these Gentiles in? And then there's this incredible story about a guy named Paul. Paul, the religious terrorist, you know, who wrote over half our New Testament. He was a Jew. His scope of the world was this small. It was what's good for our tribe, and anyone who threatened the good of the tribe would be killed by Paul. He would stand in approval over that death, as he did with Stephen. But something happens to Saul, and he catches a vision, almost the same vision that happens in Genesis 12, isn't it? This tribe's bigger than that, Paul. In fact, I'm changing your name to Paul because you are changing in this moment. This is a bigger story than you can ever imagine. And who does Paul become the apostle to? The Gentiles. Of all things, right? This guy with a narrow scope gets a bigger vision of God's vision for the world and begins to expand. And I love it because the first question in Acts chapter 1 is a question of tribalism. Are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? If you'll notice the last few words in Acts chapter 28, you find out this story has changed once again. Genesis 12 is becoming a reality. And Paul, of all people, is the person in Rome, the ends of the earth, who says these words at the end of Acts. Therefore, I want you to know, this is Acts 28, 28. Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles and they will listen. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all, let me read that again, and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. This book begins with a question about tribes and it ends with a guy that's been transformed to see. This is about the entire world. It's about all God's people and sharing this message that changes their lives. See, this movement, this whole movement of God from the very beginning of Scripture 
has been a move to pull us out of our tribes and realize this has never been about us in the first place. In fact, the fact that we're here this morning worshiping God is a testimony to Genesis 12 and Acts 2 and Acts 28 and the rest of the New Testament. Because the truth is, if the tribe didn't expand, we wouldn't be here. We're not the Jewish people, are we? We got grafted into this tree long ago. And praise God that he had a vision that was larger than the tribe. Praise God that he allowed people from far and wide to come and be a part of this movement of God. And that's the only reason we're here and that's the only reason we continue to do what we do is to realize that we live and breathe and have our being to proclaim God's good news, not to just our tribe, but to the entire world. See, the world, this is the difference between kingdom parties and worldly parties. The world parties with like-minded people. We break into our neighborhood cliques, we break into our socioeconomic class, we break, break into our racial areas of the city, and we, and we look like a, one body that looks all the same when we're in a, in a worldly party. But the kingdom of God, one day, when there's a banquet, it's going to look real diverse because people of every tribe and every tongue and every nation are going to come together at the table. You know, we, we're really worried about the flames of hell and how hot they may be, and I've heard that sermon a lot of times, but if we live in a way that we don't look forward to the banquet where people of all tribes and tongues and languages are there, the flames of heaven may be hot for those who don't like an eclectic, diverse table. So I wonder what it looks like to be a body of believers that catches this vision, that begins to look more like our city, that that makes sure that the guest list is a lot more diverse than we've ever imagined before. What would it look like for us to put the kingdom of God and God's future on display now? And that's the role of the church, is to give people just a small taste of what it's going to one day look like, to throw parties for people who are the blind and the lame, and Sooner fans and Longhorn fans, and A&M fans. And Pepsi fans and Coke fans and Mac people and PC people, it doesn't matter what your tribe is, you're welcome here. What brings us together is the good news of Jesus Christ. Amen? This is good news, church. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray as we close. God, we are sorry and we repent for the parties we have thrown that seem to look just like us where we throw these parties and we don't even question the fact that it's just Christians or it's just people in our socioeconomic class or it's just people in our racial category. It's just people in our gender. Whatever it is, God, we divide up in these categories and yet all along you've been calling a tribe that would see a bigger vision than that. People think Scripture's so behind the times, God, and yet in Genesis 12, you were evolving the world in a whole new way to see the tribe is not just about us, it's about the whole world. So God, would you bless us, but not so we can be a receptacle that just keeps resources for ourselves, but may you bless us so that we can bless the world. That's what this tribe is about. We thank you for Jesus, and we long for the day when people of every tribe and tongue and category will come together and all their knees will bend and proclaim that Jesus is Lord. So God, help us to do that now. Help us to celebrate with all the right people, which is going to include all the wrong people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.